Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephen and Kirsty, for reading to us this evening. Um, I want to do it slightly differently this evening in that um, I said at the beginning of this three-week series that I wasn't just going to try and tell you what to do. So there's going to be um, an opportunity to sort of have a sort of discussion in pairs, threes or fours, and then ask the question that someone else might want to ask, uh, and we'll do a bit of a Q&A uh, towards the end of the session. But I wanted to begin by... Uh, describing what happened to me uh, last night, um, and it was I'd been reading commentaries, and the um, and I got to the the end. I was like, I'm just going to relax. I'm going to watch some telly. Uh, so I went into the lounge. I started watching telly and put a film on. And Nicola was like, No, not that one. Um, <laughs> another one. No, not that one. No, that one. So we ended up on the Comedy Channel watching Live at the Apollo, which is a sort of a default uh, safe place for us to go to on TV uh, time. Live at the Apollo. Um, and it, it got to the end, fairly mediocre acts. Last one was quite good. And then we had that sort of sofa atrophy. Do you, do you know where you just can't be bothered to move? And whatever happens to be on the channel just stayed on. And the next thing on Comedy Central last night at about 11 o'clock at night uh, was the most appalling program I have ever come across. And uh, you, you'll be aware of Tinder, um, the, uh, the dating app where you swipe right and swipe left. Some of you look slightly guilty when you're saying it. It's not how you guys met, is it? <laughs> There's a swipe right, swipe left. Embarrassed audience. Um, and, and, and the whole point of Tinder is that on the basis of someone's filtered image, which might even be an image of someone else completely, how, how would you possibly know it's an image of them, um, you can decide whether you get rid of that person or uh, allow that person into your sort of hit list of potential matches for your life. I mean, it's, it's so degrading, it hardly goes without saying how, how appalling a concept is. But this entire TV program decided that they'd take it up another level. So here's this TV show, um, Comedy Central, 11 o'clock on a Saturday evening, not recommending it, just letting you know where you find it. And uh, the, uh, what they do is they get a couple in who have been together just long enough that you might be able to break them up, and that's sort of two-year sort of mark where they, they might be a bit shaky. Uh, and they get an audience in, and then they grab some random people practically off the street, and they get the audience to assess the random people on their attractiveness, and then they line them up, sort of one, two, three, four, like this, and the couple over here have to then decide where the relevant gender person would fit into the lineup. So the bloke's over here, um, can I borrow Dennis? Uh, and, and the bloke's sort of arming up these, these guys over here um, who have a fairly obvious sort of range of uh, what would be conventionally attractiveness. And bloke over here decides that he's positioned at number one. <laughs> so he, he announces himself as, as, as the, the best of them. Clearly, because you can see his partner um, on, in another flash, she's not so sure <laughs> that he's the number one attractiveness. But she, she loyally holds on to it. Uh, and, uh, and it emerges that actually he should have been uh, between number two and uh, three. That's all right, you, you, you can go. You probably would have won, to be honest, Dennis. But <laughs> there you go. Um, but it, it was just such a sad thing uh, to see. We made it through to the first advert break, and um, just, there was just something quite compulsive about viewing it. And I guess for those people who, as they described it, play Tinder, is there is, is this that, how do I rank myself? How do I, how do I rate myself? An enormous statistic of people believe that how you look determines who you are. How you look determines who you are. It's a pressured universe to live in, isn't it? 
Of course, we know that geeks will inherit the earth, and the Bill Gateses of this world were never the best-looking kids at high school, but they're now running the world. But the pressure is enormous if we don't feel that we can eventually fit in with what other people's perspective on us may be. I remember watching a film about a child actress, um, a girl from Matilda, the superstar in, in the film Matilda, talking about how she got to her teenage years, and she was a 7 out of 10, according to the bookies. So she never made it onto uh, teenage and adult programming because you had to be an 8 out of 10 assessed across a whole range of people's perspective. You didn't get in. didn't matter how good your acting skills are. Entirely about face, body, image. And that is the world that we are being called to sort of differentiate ourselves in and work out how things are. Um, the, uh, the series that we've been looking at has been trying to ask some questions like, is the world that we're living in the best way to live? Or are there other ways of thinking about things that might be more freeing for us and more helpful for us? For example, I was chatting to a gentleman who's come in today about how the way things used to be. You know, back in the day, you'd turn up uh, in, a, in a country and you'd have to have a map. Some of you don't know what a map is. That's the thing that you have if the smartphone's not working. It's a piece of paper with uh, directions on it. Um, and if, if you flew in somewhere, you, would, you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to navigate your way around. Now you've, there's an app for that. Um, but other things have changed quite fast in our culture as well. Last week, we were talking about the mess we're in and some of the, the difficulties we're in. In the 1990s, there was a dominant um, sitcom on the television, um, Friends. Uh, most of you would have watched it at some point or another, even on the reruns. And Friends did something extraordinary in it normalized um, what we had read to us in the reading about King David. It normalized pornography as basically an okay to good, good thing. Now something like 67% of people say porn. Yeah, maybe that's a good way of expressing your sexuality. But a survey um, of people who were using porn, um, just some students, uh, did a very simple thing. They're all students who are in a relationship, and it just showed them 16 images and a six-minute video of a girl engaging in sexual acts. And by the end of that six-minute video and the 16 images, guess how they scored their current girlfriend or partner? Way down. Six minutes and 16 images. And the love of their life had been degraded in their eyes compared to this glamorized image that may never actually really have existed as a human being. That's after all the glossy sort of photo shoot thing that happened. Isn't that extraordinary? Is that a neutral thing? Is it okay that uh, the way we think about ourselves now is so sexualized? Is it okay the amount of eating disorders that's led to? The percentage of people struggling with anorexia? Um, because of the way other people talk about their images. Did you know that the biggest increase on eating disasters now is 10 to 14-year-olds, boys, who are living in the post-David Beckham era, where their image matters immensely in a way that women have had to deal with for decades. But suddenly they're there as well. Is this good culture, <laughs> neutral culture, or out-of-control culture. Now, you can 
make your own minds up on this. But let's look at how the story pans out in the, the first reading that we had read to us today. King David is a warrior. He's a fighter. If you know anything about him, he is the man who slew a giant as a teenage lad. He got a stone in a sling, flung it through the air, hit the giant on the head, the giant fell over, just about managed to get the giant's huge sword, chopped his head off, uh, Bob's your uncle, and the Israelites have won a war. And he carries on, and he's a great, mighty warrior. Gets to midlife, and frankly, he's got a bit bored of being a hero of the hour. So in the time when kings go off to war, King David went up onto his rooftop. It's pretty much the same as searching Google images <laughs> in a darkened room. Because he knew from his rooftop that the female bathing area was just down there, <laughs> carefully arranged to be in sight of the king's palace. And there was this gorgeous woman called Bathsheba who had decided that she was going to go for a particular bathe, full frontal nudity, at that particular time when the king was on the roof. Now, whether this was planned in her heart or in his heart, we don't know the details of that. What we do know is she cleanses herself from her impurity. Her husband's miles away, so why she's bothering to do that, we don't know. David sees her, he's captivated by her, and calls her in and sleeps with her. And, uh, and the story evolves from there. It evolves in a really seedy way. She ends up pregnant, and so David calls her husband, who's one of his best mates, by the way, back from the front uh, where he's fighting, because he's gone off to war, uh, and he tr gets him drunk and says, go and sleep with your wife. And this man, Uriah, is like, he's a solid bloke. He's, he's a standout guy. He's like, look, all my men are out fighting. I'm not going to go and sleep with my wife. Um, that would be dishonorable to my fighting troops. Um, and David just gets him hammered, <laughs> and still he won't go and sleep with his wife. So she gets, obviously shows more and more. <laughs> She's fully pregnant. And David's like, I'm a bit of a mess here. So he gets on the, you know, the, the Wi-Fi phone, the Skype thing to the front line, and, and says, look, put Uriah right in the heat of battle tomorrow so that he gets dead. And then he takes Bathsheba for himself. They have a child. The child dies as it happens. They have another child, which is King Solomon. But King Solomon is a total screw-up when it comes to sex. <laughs> He's recorded as having 300 wives and 700 concubines, which by anyone's book is not a healthy way of approaching relationships. That's like just too much to juggle. One is just about the right number to juggle in that department. Uh, Tough love. And David's other sons get even more schizo at this point. One of them sleeps with one of his sisters. Another one rapes David's concubines. The legacy of that act, that lust of his eyes from the rooftop down at this girl bathing, is enormous and permeates throughout the scripture. It's just such a common story, though, isn't it? Such a common story. I was hearing just recently about uh, a leader, uh, a well-known Christian leader. I mean, it's not even any point talking about political leaders on this because they don't even care anymore, do they? They're just like, um, I'll do what I do. But Christian leaders, we've still got the sense that it really would be best if the vicars weren't sleeping with random people. Those of you who are training for that, that is what we believe. <laughs> uh, stay safe. Um, but people get it wrong. And uh, there's a guy who was well-known platform speaker and ended up sleeping with someone on his team. And uh, I just heard this year that someone's 
invited him to come and speak on a platform at another conference. Not the one he was involved in, but another one this year. Uh, I mean, if that person who invited him asked the question, how does his wife feel about this? Happens to know she's really pissed off about it. <laughs> so we're not over this yet. And Christianity believes in grace, it believes in forgiveness, it believes in reconciliation, it believes in repentance. But it also believes that there's consequences to the rubbish we do. And do you know that phrase, gigo? Gigo is garbage in, garbage out. Jesus said, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. And your eyes will give away where your heart is. It's really easy in our culture, in our age, in our um, community to do almost anything but walk the way that Jesus would have us walk, as was read to us in Stephen's reading. It's so easy to do almost anything else. That's why at this service last week I was saying, if you're even vaguely trying to walk Jesus' way, well, good on you. That's a tough calling in this life. But in this talk, and before we go to sort of more Q&A on, on some of the intricacies on this, um, I just want to allow the full challenge of where the Bible is to, to register with us. Um, because we've talked about how we can't get back to Eden, and we've talked about how in eternity we're not going to actually be married anymore. Um, it doesn't mean we won't get to be with our loved ones, but we'll have transcended these sort of nuclear units. We'll be able to know everyone and be known by everyone. Uh, there will be just the most expansive, open, wonderful community. And if you want to hear more on that, uh, listen to the talk from two weeks ago on our podcast. Uh, but here, um, the challenge that God gives us is the highest of all. When Jesus talked about these things, he upped the ante while also being the most loving person ever. On the one hand, he just held out his hands and said, look, if you know that you've got this wrong, I can save you. But where people thought they were doing all right, he said, look, the standards you're judging yourself by, that's not the full story. Even if you look at someone lustfully, that's, that's adultery in my eyes. And so the, the challenge of... Um, as, as laid out in 1 Corinthians, is this. And, and it's written by Paul, and Paul, you have to understand, is the person who's most into freedom in all of the Bible writers. One of his great quotes is, it was for freedom that Christ has made us free. He was like, you can't get right with God by working hard. The only way you can get right by God is by his gift, his grace being given to you. You can't earn your way to God. It's only a free gift. And when he gives you this free gift, you're really free. Uh, Jesus said, when the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So what do we do with that freedom? What do we do with that freedom? Here in Corinthians 6, it says, look, I'm free. Everything's permissible for me. But there are three responses to that when it comes to thinking about uh, relationships, sex, sexuality. Firstly, not, not everything's beneficial. Okay, God's not going to zap you if you go on Tinder tonight. But is that really good for you to do? <laughs> to start scoring yourself out of 10? 
What's that going to do to your soul over time? What if you have an accident? What if you got disfigured in some way? Would your worth as a human being go down? I love the story of a father who was talking to his little girl. And she wanted to know why he loved her. And he, he thought about the possible answers he could give to the little girl. He could say, it's because you're so bright. He could say, because your eyes are so lovely. Or because your hair's so nice. Or because of the, the way you hug me. But he was a particularly wise father, and he realized that none of those things necessarily would last for a lifetime. Hair goes gray, eyesight fades. Intelligence is a very relative thing, and we can feel very insecure about it. And he he told her in an answer that didn't satisfy her at the time, but decades later made great sense to her. He told her, I love you because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. No conditions, no reason. I'm your daddy and I love you. Everything may be permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Is it actually going to help you to sleep with that person that you barely know? To stare at that screen? To turn that corner? To not turn off the telly? Is it going to be beneficial? The second answer is, everything might be permissible for me. I'm a Christian. I'm free from law. But I will not be mastered by anything. Incredibly, 22% of men who identify as Christians and 2% of women who identify as Christians say that they have been mastered by, i.e. addicted to, pornography. Just as a, for instance... Other people are mastered by serial relationships. I'm feeling rubbish about myself. I'm going to go and sleep with someone today. It's easy to be mastered by different things, isn't it? Food, alcohol, uh, how you see about yourself, cutting, self-harm, abuse, all these things. They can master us. Uh, And we do not need to be mastered by things that won't last forever. And finally, in chapter 10, verse 23, just over the page, everything is permissible for me, uh, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek their own good, but the good of others as well. One of our mantras of society is, it doesn't matter if it, if it doesn't hurt anyone else. It's my life. The Bible asks, well, how's it building someone else up? How's it growing community? How's it changing people? If you've ever seen one of those exposés of the porn industry and the utter abuse that happens to the girls before they end up on the film, by and large, you'd probably flee away from it quicker than you might already. And I want to finish with this little story before allowing a little bit of Q&A time if anyone's brave enough for that. There was once a man that God chose and he said to him, I want you to marry someone. And he was like, yeah, I've been waiting for this. And she's beautiful. And he was like, fantastic. 
And God was like, she's a prostitute. It's like, you sure about this, God? <laughs> Am I hearing this right? Uh, and she won't be faithful to you. She'll keep being unfaithful to you. And Hosea did as God asked. And she was unfaithful to him to the degree that it was like she was paying people to sleep with her. That's how screwed up and mess she was. In the study notes, there's a, a fantastic retelling of that story that I really recommend you uh, having a look at and reading, especially if you're into romantic uh, sort of novels by, France, uh, by Francine Rivers. It's called Redeeming Love. And it depicts the story of a, a British girl who's abused, orphaned, taken on a boat to the new world, ends up as a prostitute, a hurt, hard, harsh exterior, harsh interior. And a man called Michael Hosea goes to her and has the nudge from God that he's supposed to redeem her. He pays for her services and sits and talks to her, eventually um, persuades her to marry him. She runs away, ends up back in the brothel. He goes to chase after her. And everything about that story of Michael Hosea and the story of Hosea in the Bible is supposed to entice us to understand what it's like to be God faced with the likes of you and me. As we turn away from God again and again, as we turn our own way, as we do our own thing. Because one of the chief images of God in the scripture is, I'm a lover. And as a lover, I'm vulnerable to you. I'm a lover. And I long to love you as no person has ever loved you before. I'm a faithful lover who knows everything about you already and will still commit to you. But because I'm your lover, I'm vulnerable to you. And you can hurt me again and again. And I want you to understand that for the last 50 years, you've been turning away from me. Or the last 14 years, you've been turning away from me. And every turn away from me has been like a slap on my cheeks all the way through. But I'm still here for you. Even though you're metaphorically in that brothel, <laughs> I still want you as my lover. I'm going to chase you down. That's the sort of God we have. And faced with that sort of love, how should we then live? Maybe everything is permissible for us. Maybe he's wiped the slate clean. Maybe there's nothing that we're going to answer for if Jesus has paid the price for it on the cross. Maybe. But if someone's prepared to love you like that, what's the best response to them likely to be? That's where we're going to pause for now. Um, and I just wanted to invite you um, for a few minutes just to um, turn to a friend or you can think for yourself. Um, and uh, what I'd like you to do is in, we're just going to have some Q&A. We might have time for five or six questions depending on, on what they are. It could be on any topic on anything we've looked at in the last six weeks or so. Um, it's no out-of-bounds question at all. And what I'd like you to do is ask for on behalf of a friend. <laughs> so uh, if my friend was here, they would like to know this. Um, Great, so the question for the tape is, um, we gather it's not a great idea to sleep around, um, but what about if you're in a loving, committed relationship, is it right to have sex then? Um, I mean, the passage we are looking at today um, basically uh, has, has this line on it, and um, before getting into that, it's probably just worth acknowledging the, the general sociological norm that that is for us today. Um, so that is clearly where most people are at in society, and those of you who've got 
grown-up children. That's, uh, that's probably been their norm. Um, smiles there. Um, you know, uh, most of us. Um, the, the passage here uh, has a big challenge. In, uh, it says in verse 16, do you, do you know that anyone who unites themselves with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. Uh, and the two will become one flesh is the description used in Genesis of Adam and Eve being married. <laughs> I see, it seems to me that the Bible teaching on sex is basically if you sleep with someone, you are ipso facto uh, married to them. <laughs> and that's partly why it's such a, 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 sort of a, a big deal. Um, because sex is beyond a physical act. It, it's an emotional, spiritual, soul act as well. Uh, and as soon as you sleep with someone in the Old Testament law, um, you had the right to then go to, uh, if, if you were the man, you had the right to go to the, to the girl's father and say, um, I'm really sorry, sir, um, I got a bit carried away last night. I've knocked your daughter up. Um, here's the bride price. <laughs> um, we'd better arrange a wedding really quickly. Um, but the assumption was sex was the opening act of marriage. That's what seals the deal. There's no sort of great Anglican ceremony in Genesis. There's Adam and Eve naked in the garden. The two become one flesh. Uh, and for this reason, it says, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. So sex, rather than just being sort of a, a casual sort of thing that we do um, just uh, as coming-of-age ceremony, is um, something that is supposed to seal the deal on the person that we're going to be committed to all our lives. And I suppose the reason why that um, is so challenging today is because most of us have grown up in a time where actually the pressure is on us to sleep with anyone <laughs> all over the place, whether we care about them or not, uh, whether we're, we're married to someone else at the time or not. It's just to sort of just carry on um, sleeping with people. How many notches can you get up? I've just been watching... Now, how I Met Your Mother on Netflix and the, the sort of the ethos behind that is can you get to 150, 200 conquests? Um, but in, in the Bible, sex is a much more important, almost spiritual thing, not just a physical thing, and it unites uh, you together. Um, and uh, yeah, so is that a reasonable answer to, to that? Stephen? Uh, yeah. Which is, um, with that in mind, if, if your intention then is to get married, say you're engaged... Yeah. Would it then not be fine, you know, you're essentially um, coming up that marriage and, and you have got that lifelong commitment in mind? Um, yeah. Is that not? Okay. Well, again, that's, that is a great question and it comes in the next chapter. Um, and uh, there it says, um, to, uh, to virgins who are unmarried, it says, um, should you get married? Probably, uh, actually, it says it's better not to get married. Uh, hang out being single because it will be less hassle for you. Um, there's a few nodding heads in the room at that point. Um, but it says, if you are, um, uh, in verse 36 of 1 Corinthians 7, if anyone thinks he's acting improperly towards the virgin he's engaged to, in other words, he's like pushing that physical relationship beyond what would have been the conventional norm, um, or if she's getting on in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he's not sinning, they should get married. Um, the man who settles the matter in his own mind but is under no compulsion but has control of his own mind and made up his mind not to marry the virgin, that man does right too. Um, but the, the key word in there is, is virgin, the virgin that you're engaged to. And the assumption of the passage is that it would be uh, the point of sexual union would be at the point you are actually uh, married. Um, so that's the basic Bible teaching on that. 
Okay, so moving very swiftly away from being engaged. Um, I've just been sat here listening over the last few weeks and today, and you were just talking now about um, essentially when a man and woman have sex and that's sort of sealing the deal vis-a-vis -vis marriage. This has been awful lot of references to prostitution, mm. particularly in the Old Testament, but also yeah. I think in the New Testament. And also a lot of the family relationships in the Bibles are, Bible is such a mess. You know? Yeah siblings sleeping with each other and even David just looking down at the bathing house and I was just wondering why that is. Yeah that's a, that's a really good question why, why are we such a mess when it comes to this um, and, and that was the whole topic of last week's um, talk and podcast so looking through uh, um, Old Testament history and just how badly wrong they got it and, and how neither starting again nor choosing one family nor giving them the law really sorted it out. Um, my my hunch is that, um, that I've been a mess on this, and humanity's probably been on a mess on it mainly, because it's, it's really important. It's really personal. Um, intimacy is something that we long for. Uh, loneliness, I think, is something that, uh, that we fear. I fear loneliness. I'm, I'm not great if I'm, I'm lonely or isolated. Um, there's also a sort of a, um, for, for us guys, there's a sort of a, a macho thing, um, a sort of a conquest thing. Um, I certainly... That's how I felt at school when we were going to different parties. It would be, it was, I had no real sense of whether I cared for the girl um, who I might be meeting at a party at all. I was just definitely going to go and get off with her because that was my achievement for the evening. Um, it's a bit scary now. I'm a father of a daughter <laughs> um, and seeing how the world's come on. But, but there was just a sheer sense of, of a victory. And I think for the girls in the room, that's really worth knowing, um, you know, how some of the, the male mind works on these things. I'd sometimes say anything um, to, to notch up an, an achievement. Um, so I think, it, I think it speaks right into some of our vulnerabilities, some of our insecurities. And, um, and I, but as I said last week in last week's episodes, it was, um, it's also incredibly freeing that the stories in the Bible are of such a mess. Because if most of us did a family tree going back a few generations, we would also find enormous messes, wouldn't we? Um, and even if you just look in on your own life, you find enormous messes. And one of the great things about the scripture is it, it says realistic things to us. It says um, that we don't make God's grade. Um, but that doesn't matter to God because he wants to come and save us anyway. And I think that's one of the great joys of Christianity is it's not do my good and bads outweigh each other. Uh, but can I acknowledge that I've been a bit crap at this <laughs> and I need a helping hand? Um, and that is essentially Christianity. It's not, are you better than anyone else? Um, but are you prepared to admit you need help? And, and for me, the whole Bible story where we, we keep getting it wrong again and again is inspirational because it means that there's, uh, there's no one who's beyond the pale of, uh, of what God, God might want to get us back from. What would be... Um, if you are either practicing sexual abstinence because you're waiting to get married or you're single, what would be a recommendation on or advice on what does the Bible say about how you should deal with your sexuality in those situations? A really good question. Um, the, the first place I, I would go to on um, singleness is Jesus. Um, I remember reading an incredible dissertation from a woman in her 40s who was single and had spent, uh, her MA was spent studying Christian singleness. 
Um, and she, she began with a line that was a bit like this. Um, Jesus was a fully sexual person and was utterly fulfilled in his sexuality, um, not because he was banging Mary of Magdalene on the side and had a secret royal lineage that became Dan Brown's novel, um, but because the way he was able to relate to a whole group of people um, and be himself utterly at ease with people, both male and female, um, was actually more a sign of the eternal than Eden. So, so as we've been saying through the series, the, there's two pools in Christian thought, one to Eden, which is Adam and Eve together, the married couple thing, and the other to eternity, where we're all in community together, and we no longer need sex, it's not part of the agenda, but we have even more intimacy and even more ecstasy in heaven than we do now. Um, and there's, there's something about, about that. Um, the, the abstinence one is, is complicated um, uh, and difficult, um, unquestionably. Um, also amazingly rewarding and worthwhile. Um, and I think one of the reasons why, as I understand the scriptures, God intends sexual activity to be within marriage is the protection and the trust it gives you. Um, now, not all marriages are brilliant. Uh, many of them are still under the curse in many ways. There's a domination and subjugation, and, and we probably all know marriages that you know, we'd rather not be in. Um, but within that giving of yourself to another, um, within the vulnerability there, there's something of a return to Eden that is possible. And when that gets right, it's um, an incredibly freeing thing. And, and one, one of the things that, um, that I found really compelling for myself as I um, got to know uh, Nicola, my wife, was um, a clear sense that she was always going to love someone more than me. <laughs> Uh, which was, was God. She clearly had a sense that she was going to love God more than me. And bizarrely, that gave me an immense security in our relationship. Because <laughs> I, I clocked that even though I was undoubtedly going to let her down and annoy her and, and all sorts of other things, her commitment to God was always going to draw her <laughs> and me together. Because God uh, loves that relationship and was going to pull it together. Um, so so there's a, a strong thing there as well. Yeah. Uh, Dennis was suggesting that we, we uh, maybe podcast some stuff on this, um, some other questions. So if you, if you have other questions we haven't had a chance to do in the format of, of the worship service now, um, please do uh, give, a, give them a list and we, we'll, we'll have a go at doing it just for sort of a private consumption, as it were. There's, there's lots else that we could have said. Um, I think particularly... Um, it would have been good to have a chance to talk about the, uh, the whole thing around sexual identity that is a new development the last 150 years. Um, 150 years ago, the term heterosexual was invented. It didn't exist before that. Um, and homosexual then was invented beyond that. Um, and, and now we sort of live in a culture where LBQT, um, IQA and uh, and intersex is, is part of how we think about things. The, the one that gets the least discussion on that is asexual. And it does normally gets missed off the list um, uh, because we presume that people have to have some rampant sexuality of some sort. Uh, but there are many people for who, who don't really identify with having any sexuality at all. 
and there can be periods of people's lives where they just where they just the sex drive completely drops, uh, either through illness or just different things, uh, and that's important as well. If if we require a sexuality to be fully human, as some people claim, uh, what about those who are asexual? Um, and my my big piece on that is that um, what we have made into an identity is probably not worthy of being an identity level thing. Um, but that's a very difficult thing to, to frame in our world because it's such a militantly um, held, um, personally held of view. Um, and I think what we want to say uh, as a church, uh, as always, uh, particularly as an Anglican church, is everyone's welcome here. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, uh, what's in your heart, what's on your internet history. Um, you're welcome here. Uh, God loves you. We love you. Um, we want you to feel very welcome to be on the journey here. And as I finished the talk this morning, I said that there's sometimes you can make rules for people and try and make boundaries and say you've got to keep inside these rules. And if you do that with kids, um, then as soon as they break the boundaries, you have to shout at them, like, what oh, no, are you doing out of your room? You've missed your curfew. You're grounded for six weeks or whatever. Um, but the other way of doing it is light a fire. Um, put some marshmallows on sticks. Um, make a fun place. Make something that feels full of life. And if you do that, they'll hover around the fire uh, and hang out with you. And I think that's our calling in a world where everything's gone haywire. Can we live in such a way that is compelling, loving, kind, that people who are single or people who are getting divorced or people who are on a bad breakup or people who are newly married or people who are hurting or people who are uh, not sure about their gender identity or not sure about their sexuality, where people of all backgrounds uh, can come together and go, actually, I'm really loved here. It's a safe place for me. And from this safe place, I want to get to know the God who's made it safe and I want to get more like him all the time. And uh, I think that's what I'd love to take home from this to be. It's not about what rules can we boundary ourselves with, but how amazing is this incredible fire that God's lit for us? And if we get closer to the fire, everything else pales away into insignificance. And that's the vision to hold on to in the midst of this.